This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. My father and Willie Hester was riding down the road in, in the cyclone in the Gwinnett County and a white picket fence that was parallel to the road and it's a long pasture. There's this beautiful horse, prettiest quarter horse my father ever seen. So my father turned around and pulled in that driveway. The farmer come out. Asked, was that his horse? Yeah. My father offered him a thousand bucks. He said, nope. He offered him 1500. Papa said, you just got your horse. Bill B. Twist would, I guess, one of the smartest creatures I ever know not be human. That was the beginning of the, I guess, the most beautiful friendship my father had with animal. Billy loved Miller B. Twist and soon purchased several more for the family to ride. But Miller kind of became part of the family, and he seemed to have a special connection to the animal. Maybe it was the way the horse loved him back, with no judgment, no fear. He would go down there, and he would have either some sour grapes or a green apple or something on him that the horse liked, and he would whistle. He could whistle like, I can't do it, but he'd whistle. And Miller would come up there, and, and that horse would just take his nose and knock him around until he found every treat on him. The funniest thing you ever seen was Miller manhandling my father. But, as is always the case, the good times just seemed to not last very long. Raybert had been riding one of the horses named Red, and when he left, the gate was left unlocked. Sometime during the night, Miller B. Twist wandered out. A police officer from a nearby county was driving past the bird's farm and hit him. The animal was left in grave condition. Now Miller was right in the middle of the road. He probably couldn't help but hit him. But he knocked him into the ditch and he really laid him out, you know. By the time Billy arrived, several other police officers had shown up. He asked one of the deputies, Leon Skinner, if he would call a veterinarian and get him out to try to save Miller. Money was no concern. And within 20 to 30 minutes, tops 45, two veterinarians pull up in the van. Soon, four more vets showed up at the scene to assess the situation. And they got up and they walked to a huddle. They talked about two minutes. And they walked to my father. And I never forget this. They said, Mr. Burt, it's not good. Miller B. Twist couldn't be saved, and the vets offered to humanely put the horse down. Billy declined, deciding that he would put his friend down himself. It seemed the right thing to do. He sent Bobby Gaddis to retrieve a rifle from the house. The police and vets looked on with growing sadness. Most had tears in their eyes by now, except for the young policeman that hit the horse. The Bogart policeman spoke up and said, all this over a horse? I'd like to know who's going to pay for my car. And he didn't know who my dad was. 
and everything just got as quiet. You could have heard a pin drop for just just a few seconds there. And I remember Leon Skinner, the deputy sheriff, grabbing that policeman by the nap of the coat. And he put him off in the darkness. And I remember him saying, you stupid son of a bitch, you trying to get us all killed? Get your damn ass out of here. When my dad come walking by them going to the horse, <laughs> my dad looked at him and said, buddy, I'm fixing to go kill my horse, but <laughs> I'd rather be putting this bullet in your head. Just that simple. And he meant it. If that boy or policeman had said one word, he'd have killed his ass and everyone there. I mean, they were that close to him killing every damn one of them. Anyway, they all left. And when they left, it was tears in a lot of them's eyes. They was. The doctors, it was a sad moment. He made the doctors take $500. They didn't want to. He went down and knelt beside Miller. I seen his face wet. I never seen my dad cry. I thought it was impossible. So he was really hurting. Told me to go home. He said it kindly, but I know to go. He said to about 30 minutes. Well, he must have comforted the horse. And when we heard that shot, it was the saddest moment of our life. Hey, something about a horse, they are. Compared to other animals, they're almost human. And when you see a man and his horse, and you see the internal workings of that, it is, I don't know. It's pitiful when they lose each other. Billy buried the horse on the family's property. And he come home about two days later with a little apple tree, and he planted it there. A green apple tree. The apple tree that Billy planted over Miller B. Twist's grave is still there today. One of these days, I'll take my grandkids there, and I'll sit in the apple tree, and I'll tell the story of Miller B. Twist, and I will. From Imperative Entertainment, this is In the Red Clay. In 1967, a friend introduced Bert to a man that would become one of his closest friends and business partners. He was much in the same line of work as Billy Burt. His name... Billy Wayne Davis. Remember that name. Billy Wayne Davis. Let's just say that it's rarely a good thing when someone is referred to solely by their full name. Think Lee Harvey Oswald. John Wayne Gacy. You get the picture. He was introduced my father, uh, Jimmy Crow, a mutual friend. Jimmy Crow had been in a card game over in the west side of Georgia. He met Davis. He knew Davis was a man of means over there. He got talking to him, told him about his friend Billy Burt over here in Wine, Georgia. He said, I bet y'all you'd like to meet. Davis had access to informants in West Georgia that would provide him with names and addresses of people who were known to keep large sums of money, guns, or jewelry in their home. He kept himself presentable, kind of like City of Royster. Davis looked like he could have been the advisor to the governor. He did not advertise the fact that he was a hitman or nothing like that, because he wouldn't. He only killed for money. Find out a man had $10,000, he'd kill him. Davis operated a used car dealership in Austell, Georgia that provided a front for the large amounts of cash he was bringing in. And any time Davis or Bert needed a car for a job that was less conspicuous than their own, 
they could easily pull one off his lot and return it after the job was done. They had a system, and it worked. But not everyone was happy about the new friend of Billy's. Here's what I heard over a period of a few weeks after that from the boys. They were telling my father, Billy, we don't like the looks of this son of a bitch. And Daddy said, well, that damn boy, he's not part of us. This is something between me and him. The man got connections all over the state, and there's some money to be made. And, but nobody trusted him. Meet Mercury Cyclone GT, styled for action, fun to drive. Billy bought a 1970 Mercury Cyclone from C.W. Royster. It's a legendary machine in classic car circles. But there is a dark backstory to this. I mean, of course there is. And it all started when Billy wrecked his Torino Cobra just a week after acquiring it during a street race against Harold Chansey. He was forced off the road when a farmer pulled a tractor out into Billy's path leaving him with no choice but to smash through a barbed wire fence, coming to rest in the middle of a pasture. Tom Lott was a well-to-do insurance agent, well-known in the town. He runs State Farm, which was right there on Athens Street. My father had the insurance on the Torino with him. He had it for a little over a week. So he took the accident report to Tom Locke at the State Farm office and Tom Locke, this is on a Monday or Tuesday and he told him, he says, uh, alright Billy, come back Friday this ought not be a problem. Well the next day, Cedar Royster who also had car lots all over Athens, he had heard about my father losing his uh, new whiskey car and he'd run up on my father, he said, Billy heard about you and Harold uh, racing that wreck. He said, listen, I've got something you may want. You want to jump in this car and ride to Athens with me? I think you'll be riding back in a different car. So my father rode to Athens with him, and there was the white Cyclone Mercury 1970. He took it for a spin, bought it on the spot. Come back to State Farm to get insurance that Friday morning as he would pick his checkup for the accident for the Torino. Would have sit out there for 30 minutes, enough to piss him off before finally Tom Locke come out of the back to tell him that there'd been a problem, that his home office says that they weren't going to pay off. When he asked him why, Tom Locke said, well, you hadn't had insurance enough. When Tom Locke said they said they weren't going to pay off, he says, who the hell are they? I paid you the $300, here's the paperwork. Well, Bill, I understand that you don't agree with it, but you can sue me. That's your right. Okay. So the next night he... My dad rigged the dynamite, had it all set. You know, all you had to do was stick two wires to a battery, run out a hundred foot. He left Otis here and told him it exactly 4 a.m., connect them wires and then get there home. He blowed his place up. With dynamite. Tom Lott rebuilt. In one month, he had a new office. And the morning of the first day, sitting in the office on Athens Street, they found him with three bullet holes. And they ruled it a suicide. 
I ventured to ask the question, Dad, why did they rule Tom Locke's death a suicide? What possessed him to do that? He just said, look, son, back then, police didn't have no help. Hell, they were seven or eight on the force. If they couldn't solve a crime, they were more apt to say accident or if they had the opportunity of suicide rather than murder or foul play. And he contemplated a minute. And he said, but in a way, when the son bitch didn't pay me from a car, even after I blowed his place up, hell, he did commit suicide. That was the, uh, the way he thought. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. They got nowhere by 1970, not even a speeding ticket. As a matter of fact, the Dixon Mafia got stronger, bigger, and there were no arrests. The government does not like to be have mud on its face. I don't care whether it's Jimmy Carter or any other public official, nor do the agents. Billy Burt, working hand-in-hand hand with Billy Wayne Davis, would embark on a crime spree not seen since the days of the Wild West. They robbed banks in broad daylight. They robbed high-stakes underground gambling houses, and Davis would pay Burt to kill. They were untouchable, invincible. They feared no one, and for the right price, no one was safe. But after years of law enforcement making no headway in infiltrating or bringing down the Dixie Mafia, the federal government brought in the best man they had. If anyone could take control of the situation in Northeast Georgia, he could. There was a man named Jim West who was famous in the ATF circles because he had infiltrated a very large moonshine operation in Florida and North Carolina. He had infiltrated it and was successful in bringing it to light, the conspiracy of it all. James Earl West, better known as Jim, was promoted to ATF Special Agent by Solicitor General Robert Kennedy for infiltrating and bringing down the largest bootleg operation in Florida history at the time. He actually lived on an Indian reservation for some time while gathering evidence, and his bust unearthed some $2.5 million in unpaid alcohol tax. His Special Agent title meant that Jim West would take the lead on anything concerning alcohol, firearms, tobacco or taxes, as well as any conspiracy cases. I guess the law enforcement got together and says, okay, we're going to put the best on it. And they considered Jim the best because, you know, he had all these accommodations. He done done it. So in early 1970, they told him to pick his own men, do what he had to do. He had full backup of not only the ATF, but the DOI, the GBI, the FBI, but he was in charge because it was the ATF. ATF always in charge when it involves alcohol, tobacco, or guns. 
And if the murders are related to alcohol, tobacco, guns, he's in charge. Jim West took the assignment and immediately packed up and headed for Georgia. Jim West comes to Georgia. He moves out here to a house in Good Hope, which is in Walton County, 15 minutes outside of Winder, beside Monroe. West was given carte blanche and was allowed to put together a team to support him, knowing all too well that part of this assignment would mean chasing down outlaws and souped-up whiskey cars. He knew just the man to have at his side. So Jim West come to town. He said, I want from a driver, Jack Berry. Jack Berry had the same reputation as Jim West, except his reputation was for being the best driver the ATF had. He had made his bones in the 50s and 60s by being able to drive any car and keep it in the road and keep it with the best of them. The 165 revenue agents that Jimmy Carter sent to Georgia in 1965 as part of Operation Dry Up still hadn't made much progress in the big picture of things. And it was becoming a bit of an embarrassment, truth be told. But now that the famous Jim West and Jack Berry were on the case, the Dixie Mafia might finally have something to worry about. I asked Stoney if the atmosphere changed once West and Berry arrived. You could spot every single entity, whether it be ATF, FBI, GBI, by this. They all drove mostly dark green, if not dark green, white, some black. 69, 70 or 71, LTD Ford, all with 429 built motors. But here was a giveaway. I, for the life of me, I can't figure out why they done this. They all had black wall tires with a little shiny hubcap, and they should have just had a law roll on the side of the car. There was absolutely not one unmarked vehicle that didn't scream law. And it was sort of a carnival atmosphere right here. They were the joke of the community. Everybody was laughing about it. There never was an atmosphere of dread. But the fun, reckless, and carefree days were numbered for Billy Sunday Burt and the members of the Dixie Mafia. Jim West quickly resorted to offering money to anyone with information about whiskey still locations. And while anyone with half a brain knew to keep their mouth shut, his plan still worked. People began to talk, little by little. They would learn the hard way, though, that this was a colossal mistake. Jim West would go to people, try to get them to talk, like dolls, and he would offer them $1,000 for every time one of them would tell where he still was. See, once he got them to do that, he had them. He could make them tell more. But what Jim West didn't know was that Ruth Chancy who by this time had replaced Cliff Park as the most powerful kingpin in the South, had friends in high places. He would go talk to them and get them to tell where these steals was. What nobody knew was that Ruth Chancey had an informant inside of the Barrett County Sheriff's Department, inside the Walton County Sheriff's Department, and inside of the GBI. Here's how it would happen. He would go back and brag to one of his comrades or whoever, that so-and-so had just told him where it still was, or so-and-so was thinking about testifying, he called the name. 
Well, the informant in one of these three places heard it more often than not. And when they did, within hours, Ruth would get a call. Jim West says that so-and-so's about to testify. Well, my father would get a call to come see her after that, and within days, that person would come up missing. At first glance, Ruth Chancy looked like a sweet little old lady, but she is considered to be the godmother of the Dixie Mafia. She was powerful, rich, and mean. She is reported to have ordered more hits from Billy Burt than anyone else by far. She was given the well-deserved nickname, Ruthless. But even though Billy was paid handsomely by Ruth Chancy each time this happened, even he thought that much of this killing was unnecessary. He resented Jim West for this, because in his mind, his hands were tied. My dad come to really dislike Jim West because he was <laughs> promising these people protection and leaving him no choice but to kill him. Because when he was asked to take out a snitch, he had to do it for his own survival, plus the whole group. So he really had a bad taste of Jim West. West continued to pay people for information, promising them protection. And people continued to disappear. But for the time being, he kept his distance from Billy, his family, and his close inner circle. Jim West never approached any of my family or me. He knew, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that if he got personal with Billy Burr on that level, that he would be gone. In November of 1971, Special Agent Jim West still hot on the heels of Billy Burt and his gang, as well as his partner Harold Chancy's bootleg operation, had finally found the solid lead he was looking for. Then Walton County Sheriff Frank Thornton knew a man with inside knowledge of Billy and the Chancy's whiskey ring, who he thought might be willing to talk. You might remember the local grocer named James Dawes, or Jim as most people knew him, who sold large quantities of sugar to bootleggers like Harold Chancy. In 1967, Dawes married Ruth Chancy, and since then, that marriage had gone south. Dawes filed for divorce from Ruth, and it was ugly. At Sheriff Thornton's urging, he contacted Jim West, offering what information he had on the whole operation. And West knew to strike while the iron was hot. James Dawes contacted him when him and Ruth were divorcing, and Sheriff Frank Thornton of Walton County and Jim West promised him federal protection if he would testify about the sugar that he'd been selling Harold and what he knew about the whiskey operation. Dahl swore out a statement telling what he knew of the operation and naming names. The information he provided was incorporated into a federal indictment and he was subpoenaed to testify in a trial to be held in Greenville, South Carolina shortly after. Deputies stood watch at Dahl's home And even Sheriff Thornton went so far as to stay overnight several times, sitting on the front porch, shotgun in hand. But neither the deputies nor the sheriff were at Dawes' home on the night of November 22nd, 1971. And that's the last day anyone saw Jim Dawes alive. He was found nearly a month later by a fisherman floating in the nearby Mulberry River on December 17th. 
Cement blocks had been tied to his neck and ankles with wire coat hangers. Five days later, his car would be found submerged in Lake Lanier, north of Atlanta. Billy Burt and the Dixie Mafia were obvious suspects for Dawes' murder, but there was no evidence to make an arrest, and the case was never officially closed. Now, the series of events that unfolded here have been recorded and accepted by law enforcement for more than 47 years. It wasn't until I started digging around for this podcast that the truth of what really happened on the night of November 22nd, 1971, came to light. I spoke with Walton County Sheriff Joe Chapman to see what information he had on the cold case. Here he is, right here. That's him in the mulberry room. Joe shows me the actual case file of Jim Dahls, along with graphic pictures of the crime scene. That's when they pulled him out. See the blocks tied with coat hangers? That was an M.O. of Billy Sunday was coat hangers. I didn't know that back then, but hindsight, looking back, they used coat hangers for every damn thing. Look at this. I haven't seen this. I don't know how I missed that. Read that. That's an FBI report there. This is an FBI document, too. Stoner's got a lot of stuff, but he don't have these. You see him tied with the coat hangers around his neck. Dawes was bloated, and his skin was pasty white. He was covered in mud and weeds. I've got a strong stomach, but it was hard to look at these pictures, knowing that this was a person that I'd been talking about for weeks now, and I never really connected the dots on this level. At least, not until now. I had always been told that Jim Dawes was murdered because he was going to testify in court that Harold Chanson and all them was getting sugar from him to make the liquor. You know, I don't know why, because I, I, I'm known for doing this, especially old cases. I don't know why in the hell I didn't go ask Billy Sunday did he kill Jim Dawes. I just don't know why. Joe's curiosity got the best of him and he called Stoney to see if he would speak with him about the murder, or if Stoney even had any information that he didn't already have. Well, I, I had to find a number to call him, and I found the number, and I called him. I said, uh, this uh, Billy Stonewall bird? He said, it is. He said, who's this calling me? I said, this is the sheriff of Walton County. He said, what can I do for you? I said, well, look, I'm going to ask you something. And if I offend you in any way or piss you off in any way, you can just hang up the phone and when you just forget that I ever called. He said, well, what is it you want to ask me? I said, did your daddy kill Jim Dawes? He said, he damn sure did. And I said, well, do, do you know about it? He said, yeah, I know. He said, everybody always said that Jim Dawes was killed because of sugar. I said, that's what I've heard forever. He said, that ain't why he killed him. Sheriff Frank Thornton of Walton County and Jim West promised him federal protection if he would testify about the sugar that he'd been selling Harold and what he knew about the whiskey operation. But what he didn't tell them was he liked to beat women. While him and Ruth was 
arguing during the divorce. He beat her so bad one time that she was black on her blouse, top to bottom. And so when my dad pulled down to the Harold's house one day, the same room as the cheating house, she said, come here, bitch, I want to show you something. She pulled up her blouse, black and blue. He said, damn woman, what happened to you? She said, that son of a bitch beat the hell out of me. I want you to take care of him, but I don't want Harold to know it. Okay. Next night, him and Harold's riding down the road taking a load of whiskey somewhere. And sometimes when you went to a rough spot, you had to have ride, somebody had ride shotgun with you because when you pulled in there, the one riding shotgun had to get out beforehand with a shotgun and get on top of a roof or whatever. And if somebody tried to take you from you, rob you, you know, you had to be ready. So headed to that place, I think it was Conyers. But dad said, damn son, did you see what that son has done to your mother? And I said, yep, yep. And I want you to take care of that son bitch, but I don't want mama to know nothing about it. Bert got a tip that officers standing guard at Dawes' house had been relieved of duty for three hours to go home and spend time with their families for Thanksgiving. It would prove to be a fatal error in judgment. Bert grabbed Billy Wayne Davis and the two dressed as FBI agents in black suits and ties, complete with black sunglasses and Davis's counterfeit FBI credentials. They knocked on Dawes' front door. And when Davis knocked on the door, he was big enough that my father stood behind him and you couldn't really see him. And when Dawes opened the door, Davis said, we have a information that Harold Chance has been harbored here. And immediately Jim Dawes said, hell no. Somebody's not here. Come in and look. Well, the second one in the door was my father. And when Jim Dawes seen him, he knew it was over. The men told Dawes they wanted any money he had in the house, as well as a large diamond ring that belonged to Ruth Chancey. Dawes gave them the ring and $1,500, claiming that was all he had in the house. They put him in the car. They brought him to Statham. They come straight to where we lived in Statham. From that point, Billy Wayne, he went on back to Austin. He got out of Dodge. They only brought him in because Dawes didn't know it. One of the guys simply took his car late in there and ran it off and where they usually dump cars and do the dam. And my dad and one more put him in the boot, hogtied him, took him to Mulberry Road in a different car. Now they get to Mulberry Road, which was a dirt road, and a wooden bridge, and it was one lane. And they take him out, they put him on the bridge, and he told him, now we know you got the bank worth of money hid somewhere. Tell us where it is and we'll let you go. Well, Dawes knew better. He started twisting and flipping and just rolled off into the water before my father had a chance to take the air out of him, as he put it. Didn't put a man in water unless you cut his stomach or else you would float. So that's why he floated one month later. But he wanted that water. If he had any money, he'd take it with him. That was it. Jim Dawes was killed because he was beating his wife, Ruth. And let's face it, he was likely to end up on Billy's hit list anyway for just telling about the bootleg operation. But it was major news that a well-to-do local businessman, largely respected and liked by most people, had been found floating in the Mulberry River, tied to cement blocks. 
As you might imagine, the small town was buzzing. While Stoney didn't really know what took place at the time, he did stumble onto something two days later that, even at his young age, raised a giant red flag. While joyriding with a friend and a few cousins, they got a flat tire. Now, my dad had a 1968 Oldsmobile with a convertible top. And I remembered that the Oldsmobile was parked beside my grandmother's house, right there, a mile from where we were. So we went there at 2 o'clock in the morning to open the boot to get a jacket, and hopefully get another tire. And when I opened that boot, the first thing I seen was cement blocks and coat hangers. And it hit me. Now, the news had just had come out about him floating two days before. And this joker with me was 14, 15 years old, this Vanderford guy. I immediately slammed the boot shut. I said, no, nah, he don't have a jack. And the guy says, what's all them blocks doing in there? I try to minimize that. I don't remember what I said, but it scared me to death. We didn't fix the car that night. And we walked back to my cousin's house, which is three miles away, and all I could think of was getting to my dad, getting to my dad, getting to my dad. Because in my mind, I knew it. I knew at age 11 that those were cement blocks and the coat hangers that were used to sink that man. Had Billy Burt finally gone too far for the young boy that idolized him? It didn't affect me. It did not have me traumatized for the fact that he killed me, all that was on my mind was to warn him so he could rectify his mistake and my mistake of taking somebody to the car and allow them to see what was in it. I felt like I had screwed up and I wanted to get to my dad and tell him. Stoney got home early the next morning and rushed into the bathroom where his father was shaving. He immediately told him what he'd seen. My mother was in there with him. She often sit in there and talked to him when he shaved. She, they had a real loving relationship. I said, Daddy, I need to talk to you. He said, talk, son. I said, Daddy, I need to talk to you by yourself. He had the strangest look on his face. He said, all right, honey, let me talk to him. So she walked out of the bathroom. I never will forget the look on his face. He was shaving. I said, Daddy, I messed up. We had a flat tire, and I went to that Oldsmobile park beside Granny's. And when I opened the boot, there were cement blocks and coal hangers in there. And this 14-year-old boy that I had with me seen them. I closed the boot fast I could, but he seen them. And I seen the alarm in his face. He said, well, why are you telling me that? I'm mocking this way he talked. Why are you telling me that? That's because, Daddy, they just have, that man just has floated in that river. And he tried his best to take that knowledge from me. He said, oh, son, no, you're thinking wrong. Uh, them blocks, them co we had so-and-so. He gave me some lame story about what they had to do so-and-so. But he got dressed pretty fast. With the information Stoney provided to Sheriff Joe Chapman, the murder case of Jim Dawes, which had gone unsolved for nearly 48 years, was officially closed. I said, well, I'll be damned. So I typed all that up 
and put it in this file as case closed. I showed that to the district attorney, but uh, nobody else. What's, what's strange is it did not traumatize me. It didn't. I had no feeling whatsoever for it. All I was worried for was his well-being. It was at that time, the first time in my memory, that I knew for a fact what my daddy was doing. That event let me know for a damn fact he'd done it. And my only worry was to help him not get caught. That sounds crazy. In the Red Clay is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote and created the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Produced and engineered by Shane Freeman, Jason Hoke, and myself. Cover art and design by Gina Sullivan. Voice sessions recorded at Tree Sound Studios, Atlanta, Georgia. Archival footage licensed courtesy of Brown Media Archives, University of Georgia, and WSB-TV in Atlanta, Georgia. In the Red Clay is a 12-episode series with new episodes available every Tuesday. Follow us on Instagram at In the Red Clay Podcast. Have questions? Email us at podcasts at imperativeentertainment.com. If you like the show, tell your friends and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.